final segment of the podcast, obviously, because we've got Richard on. We'd like to um, discuss your life as a City fan, your best moments as a City fan, obviously talk about um, the um, the book that you wrote. Was it nearly two years, just over two years ago now? So if you want to introduce yourself in a bit of a further detail then and go into your life as a City fan. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and and yeah, it's really kind of you to, to give me this opportunity. It's uh, it's really nice of you both. And um, but yeah, I mean, I I basically was was born into a, a family that had nothing to do with football, and I was a whole FC season ticket holder for years. Um, and and when I was eight, I think um, I was being taught at Fifth Ave Primary School on Northall Estate by uh, a woman called Mrs. Robinson, whose son. Uh, went on to become a cricketer for Yorkshire and he's now the coach at Warwickshire, I think, Mark. Um, and, and him and his dad were just like, what are you going to watch Hull FC for? Come and watch, come watch Hull City, come and watch a real sport. And I remember the first game I went to, it was, um, it was Peterborough at home. We won 4-1. They have David Seaman in goal, making one of his first ever league appearances. And I was just absolutely hooked. I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved going to Bolivar, don't get me wrong. But there was just something about seeing City that I loved. And, and from that moment on, I was just getting to any game that I could until I became old enough to go with my mates when I was about 11 or 12. And then just, yeah, just bit, was going to every game possible. Sort of when I got to about 15, 16, started going to away games. And, and yeah, just couldn't get enough of City throughout my life. Just just loved the club. Just always, you know, have since that first game and and always will. Um, I moved to London in 2003, just sort of just because my my career took me there really, and and that only served to sort of heighten my love almost really. You know, I joined the Hull City Summers Porters, who were just a really good group. They organised travel. You know, it's pre-match pubs, post-match pubs. You know, if you can't get to the games and they're on TV, we've got our own pub that we go to and things like that. And and um, and obviously 2003 onwards was the start of something really special. And I had a you know, I had completely no, no relationship at that point. I was just able to every weekend get in my knackered old car and just drive to wherever and just celebrate these absolutely fantastic times, um, which which culminated in um, in my book, The Decade, which uh, which you've very kindly mentioned a few times, but I'll just mention it again. £20 on Amazon. Uh, I think they've got <laughs> Waterstones in Hull as well. Um so yeah, so I just I knew we'd had this um, this amazing decade, you know, where we'd been sort of close to going out of business and 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 sort of in the bottom half of the bottom division, and then gone to be standing joint top just a few of the Premier League just a few years later. We'd had these these amazing stories from people like Dino Ash, Nick Barnby, Boaz, Andy Dawson, all these these great players, and. Um, I was I was sort of waiting for somebody to to do something like what the decade became, and then nobody did. And I've written a few articles for Amber Nectar that have gone down really well. And you know, I, I'm I'm a journalist by trade, and I just sort of thought, well, mm. well, nobody's doing it. So it got to about 2014, 2015, and I thought, I, I think symbolically, Paul McShane had just left the club, and that was what mm. triggered it because I thought, right, there's nobody now from that decade associated with the club. So, so everybody can speak freely. Everybody, you know, there'll, there'll be nobody towing the party line and just sort of saying, oh, you know, everything was hunky-dory, everything was brilliant. You get people speaking more honestly. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I just thought, oh, well, I'll just give it a go then. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just try to sort of put a few feelers out and see what happens. And I managed to find Chris Chilton's son on, on Facebook. Um, so I got in touch with him. And, and fittingly, because of what's happened with the Chilton family, uh, you know, I've got to know... Gary and and, mm. and, um, and the daughter as well, Gemma, um, fairly well because because of, of everything that's happened with Chris and I've been involved in the fundraising for the family. But I, I just sort of very tentatively ran Chris Chilton up that that uh, that 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 first night. It was the first act of the book, and and I was absolutely diabolical. And I'd never I'd, I'd interviewed people before for work, but I'd never interviewed somebody who meant so much to me, and. And I was having struggle. I was struggling breathing and talking at the same time. I was that <laughs> pathetic. So I was having to sort of say a few words and then breathe, and then say a few words and then breathe again. It was just an absolute car crash of an interview. But Chris was lovely and really encouraging, and helped put me in touch with a few other people and give me some suggestions. And and the book just stemmed from there really. And once once these things start to snowball, you you just 
it, it just got out of control. I thought maybe I'd interview, you know, like 20 or 30 players and I ended up with about 120. Um, and, and it just, it just became this thing that was much, much bigger than I ever dreamt it could be. Um, I remember flukily getting Adam Pearson, who I don't think has spoken about Hull City since the interview I had with him. Um, but for some reason, he saw something in my begging email um, and, and I, I was just sat waiting outside his office to go in. He'd given me an hour to, to sort of chat, which was which was fantastic. You know, it was his office at the KCOM and his PA just came out and went, oh, he's, he's just in a meeting at the moment, I'm afraid. It'll just be 10 minutes, but you'll still get your hour, don't worry. Um, and, and Nick Bambi walked out. Uh, that was who his meeting was with. And, and you know, obviously Nick is famously private you know and I, he was somebody who yeah. I was already just thinking how the hell am I going to get him and I just thought oh god I'm just, I'm just going to have to bite the bullet aren't I and I'm not really a very sort of you know personal put myself out there and I just I just went up to him and you know when when your voice just reverts back to exactly how it was when you're 10 because you're so nervous and you're yeah. speaking to somebody important and I just I just yeah. went into that and I was just like <laughs> Uh, please, Mr. Nixon, uh, can I interview you for my book? <laughs> I, I, I had no dignity left whatsoever after that. Um, so I left him with my number and then um, interviewed Adam Pearson and just thought, oh, you know, well, we'll hopefully something will happen, but you never know. And I was in a meeting the next day at work, a really important meeting, and I just kept, saw my phone keeping on going with a number that I didn't recognise. And in my head, it was Nick Barnby ringing, but also I'm thinking, why the hell would Nick Barnby be ringing me? And this meeting, I mean, it was about 20 minutes, but it seemed to last about three hours. And eventually I sort of got off it and was just like, right, okay, rang this number. Nick Barnby answered. And to be honest, from that moment onwards, this was still quite early in it. I, I'd, I'd interviewed, like on that day, I interviewed Adam Pearson. I'd interviewed um, Andy Dawson and Tom Wilson as well. But the minute I got Nick Barnby, I kind of knew then that I had something that, that was going to sort of resonate with people, that was going to stand out a little bit because, it, and everything fell into place after that. Once everybody knew that I'd got Nick Bambi and that Nick Bambi was on board and he helped me as well. He helped me get other players. Then then it all just, every, everything just seemed to happen really. And and um, yeah, it just, it just became something beyond what I could have ever imagined, you know, and it's um, obviously I did it for a charity. I wanted it to be a labour of love rather than something that I was getting something from. Um, also, the fact that if, if it's for a charity, nobody's going to give it a bad review as well. So there is that. But um, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, but no, no, that, that really isn't one of the things. You know, I really wanted to do something for Dove House. Um, they, they'd been brilliant to some some family members and some really good uh, friends of my family. So I really wanted to do something for them. And so far, I think that I've, it's raised, it's getting on for fifteen thousand pounds raised for Dove House now, which is which is the most important thing. As much as it's been, all the other things have been great to have to be able to say, right, you know, something you've done has raised that that level of money for for a charity is as fantastic as Dove House. Um, that that's the proudest bit for me, definitely. So I think it sounds like now. you've got some like uh, amazing stories, and I think it's testament to you that you've done it for charity. <laughs> sort of person you are, you've done it for charity over personal gain and. Obviously, that makes it more special to you, and it's. I think I think it's everyone's fans' dreams to sort of be able to speak to their heroes, and I think I bet you was living in such like dreamland when you was speaking to people like Nick Barnby and the likes of, you know, Adam Pearce and stuff. And yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's just amazing, and, really. And and you know, to be fair, no, nobody's going to be unpleasant when you when you're asking them to recount what was almost always a really good time of their their career you know everybody was just so overwhelmingly positive but but people didn't just come and say their words and just say oh good luck with it you know everybody was like what else can we do how can we help you what can we do it, it was such a nice thing and then even the ones that really impressed me you know like Phil Parkinson could not have been nicer couldn't have been more helpful when when I was talking about what was essentially probably the low point of his managerial career at least you know I managed to get in touch mm. with um with Gary Johnson to get his his perspective on the on the 2008 playoff final and you know it was it just couldn't have been more gracious it couldn't have been been nicer and and, and get, getting interviews like that was quite humbling and and then there were the ones as well you know I think you shouldn't you shouldn't sort of, the, the, I think there were two, two two things that made me sort of change my perspective on on maybe how you see players there, there was the you sort of I think you expect players how they are on the pitch to maybe feed into how they are off the pitch. And I remember um, it, when I first interviewed Craig Fagan, 
and I was expecting this sort of really, you know, quite high energy, nasty, you know, it, it wasn't a pleasant player to, you know, I, I was glad he was ours, don't get me wrong, and I loved him as a player, but I, <laughs> it was a bit of a wind-up merchant, wasn't it, you know, yeah. he, he would yeah. get in other players' faces, and you just could not meet a, a kinder, nicer, more gracious bloke, and, and, and every, you know, afterwards he was getting in touch with me after the book was released, after the launch night, which he turned up for, he, he's been absolutely wonderful as Craig Fagan, he's such a, a lovely, lovely guy, um, and then there's also, I think it gave me a good insight into into just how much off-field matters can affect players on the field. And and, and the two, the, 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 there were lots of times, you know, so, somebody like Billy Whitehurst, you know, sort of uh, this fierce, you know, one of the hardest players to have ever played the game, absolutely fearsome, describing to me how it felt when he, because he'd had a really poor start to his time at Hull City, Describing to me how it felt when he first heard the fans chant his name and, and what how what that did for him and you were just like, God, Billy, you, you, you could probably have taken on the entire whole city fan contingent at that point and <laughs> a fight and won, and, and here yeah. you are, you know, need, needing their approval. But it was more um, speaking to Michael Turner and um, Dean Marnie, who had obviously joined us at the same time, and both of them didn't have the best of starts to the time at Hull City. And and people just thought, ah, oh, you know, flashing the pie, you know, but the, 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 you don't get they don't get much sympathy, you know. The, there's that element of, oh, well, you know, you you're playing football for a living, you're on all this money, what do you care? But they were both living away from home for the first times in their life, and they were just struggling with with so much off the pitch that it fed into what they were doing on the pitch. And once they got that sorted, they became huge assets to us. And I think that that it sort of you know, you, you, you try to be compassionate and things anyway, don't you? But but it, it just thought I think it spelled out to me just how how little you know about what's going on in a player's background, and and you just sort of think, well, you know, maybe maybe just be that little bit of patience. Maybe don't don't write them off immediately. Give them that bit of time. Give them that bit of encouragement because it really it can make a world of difference. And I think that they they were things that that really stuck with me as well. Yeah, I think footballs are human at the end of the day, and it's just like if you know, as an all you know, people that art footballers have a bad day at work, and that sort of affects you as well. And I think the response you got from the book and from the people that you've interviewed and the success it's had, it sort of embodies this, you know, the spirit of the club during that period, you know, between oh, two thousand. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing that sort of surprised me was how, like, obviously I I wasn't around then, was too young or not even alive, but like the way... Oh, right. There's no need to rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, like people my dad's generation were sort of going to City regularly in like the 90s, late 80s, when the club was sort of going on a downward spiral. It was sort of like interesting, the perspective that the um, fans had on like Terry Dolan, Martin Fish, etc. And then the, st- the stuff that them gets unnoticed that the players have this completely different perspective whilst they obviously understand the pain that the fans are going through, seeing the club drop into Division 3, etc. But sort of all the stuff that went on unnoticed that you sort of make makes you change your perspective slightly on those people, even though from a footballing matter, they didn't, they didn't obviously bring the success that the fans craved for. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the book went some way to sort of rehabilitating Martin Fish, certainly in, in the eyes of some. You know, he, he was just... Um, he was a front man of the needlers, really, and and just doing the best, making the best of a bad job, really. And and he made some mistakes, but everybody makes mistakes in positions like that. But but yeah, I, th- I think that um, yeah, it went some way to rehabilitating Martin. The, the the real the real nasty one at the club in the nineteen nineties was David Lloyd. That was yeah, yeah. who who absolutely nobody had a good word to say about anything, any anyone from the David Lloyd era. Um, and and that you know and uh, but yeah you you know you're right there you know the these people are are people and they you know the, the abuse that they get you look back in retrospect and you think you know what yeah that 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 was probably out of order the the club w- were all frustrated and that was boiling over in ways that maybe it shouldn't but um but yeah you know hopefully you know the, the, hopefully there'll be other books written about these periods and things like that you know and and, and I think there's looking back maybe 10 15 years ago we didn't have that great uh, a canon of work on on Hull City as far as the the literary output goes but now been lots of really really good books you know Greg Whitaker's sort of diary things was excellent Nick Turner's written some good ones Ian Bunton you've got Ian Waterson Gary Clark written some really good books and there's, there's a lot there for Hull City now and I hope that that there'll be more to come um I don't think any will be quite as long as the decade because um, it's um, <laughs> 
Uh, I, I remember getting um, I, I, ordering three hundred to be delivered to my mum and dad's house on Northall Estate, and and just going <laughs> round just before the launch, and you just couldn't see any of the house. It was just <laughs> it was all <laughs> everywhere. It, it was it was quite uh, you know because it's such a, a big thing, but. Um, but no, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, that you know, that there, are, there are still stories to be told. I keep being asked about what I'm doing next, and I'm very tempted to write. There are two things I would love to do. One is a, an, an 80s cover the 80s in greater depth because there's so many characters at the club in that point, um, and and I think there's a there's a documentary for that decade to be made. Probably not by me because it'd be dreadful. But I think I've that, I've said I've said story, this myself. Yeah. I've said this myself. Obviously, there's the um, Crystal Palace documentary that's been announced the last few days about how they went from sort of financial difficulties to the Premier League in like three years. But then there's also on top of that, you've not just got the financial difficulty with City. You've got the fact that this financial difficulty was in the fourth tier and then they've somehow managed to turn it round in such a short period. I think it'd just be fantastic if we could have a documentary based off it. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've I've made very tentative inquiries into it, and I think it would be, I, I, it's the type of thing I would I would love to be involved in and things like that. But but just from a financial perspective, I wouldn't be able to get close to it. And and there's the mm. the copyright for the goals and the footage and all yeah, things like yeah. that. Um, but but there's certainly something there. It would maybe have to be led by the club or something like that. I don't know. But um, and and, and I think that would be tricky, in some respects at the moment. Um. But but this, you know, hopefully one day we'll get something like that because I think that it would be, you know, there's just so many great stories in there. Um, that that you know, even going, you know, Matt Duke, you know, sort of being diagnosed with testicular cancer and then being a Premier League player a year later and things yeah. like, just just things that that you know, just so much fantastic stuff there. You know, Dean Windus's story alone is a fairy tale. It's 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 unbelievable, and and yeah, that that would be the thing that I would I would love to to happen the most. Like I say, I, I think my my abilities. Well, you've seen how dreadful I was at even contacting you guys on on an app to uh, <laughs> podcast. So, so <laughs> ma- making a documentary, I think, would be a little bit beyond my abilities. But um, but yeah, I, I I would hope that you know something like that could be done, and I would love to to sort of be involved in some way. You never know. I think the um, I think the the the, the book you mentioned about doing you know about the city in the eighties would be a great like book to do and. My dad, obviously, my dad's been going to city since like nineteen sixties, so he's got quite a few stories. And um, one 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 time he told me about obviously I went to I think, but it was Martin Fish. Apparently, people, fans used to post Fish through his letterbox, and we, we touched on about like how fans are sort of harsh towards the former owners and stuff, but just like stories like that, it's like yeah, I think I think it's um I think um one thing that sticks in my mind is the fact that. I think my dad's first game was in 1977, and by the time he started being started going to City for like 15, 20 years, he'd seen us go bust like numerous, almost go bust like numerous times. You just think like our generation of City fans, we only had the sort of scare with Paul Duff, and you just think like how fortunate we are that we've been brought up with this success, yeah. whilst all the other generations have had to put with all the being in the doldrums and all the financial worries. The, the 1982 one was scary when we went into receipt what was then you know it's called receivership then I think there's various other ways of describing it now but that was scary because we were the first team to ever do it and and it was just heading into completely unknown territory you know we, we had no idea everybody thought it was just the end of the club um I've got very vague memories of it but speaking to people particularly for the book that was scary but but the 90s you you know it sounds like an exaggeration but particularly under the when when it was Martin Fisher who was the chairman we were literally a slightly higher than expected electricity bill away from going under. You know, it's <laughs> on the brink, weren't we? I think just just mm. constantly, constantly, constantly on the brink of going under. And, and once we'd sold, once we'd sold our assets in particular, we sold Dino and Alan Fettis, and and we, you know, with all due respect to everybody we had left, there was nobody in the club worth worth more than that would have got more than sort of twenty twenty five grand for. And and yeah, a tax bill or an electricity bill that that was was a, sort of blindsided us a bit, and and there was proper fear there that that yeah, there, there would be no more Hull City. There were there were many times where you know I, I knew a few players around that point, um, sort of uh, I, I I sort of people I went to school with or, or people I've made friends with, and and yeah, you know they, they were they were sort of 
living on a month-to-month basis as far as being players of the whole city went for, for, for a long time. It was uh, it was scary, but, you know, the, the Dolan years get a lot of stick. There were actually two fantastic years in the middle of all that where where everybody was really... It, Martin Fish wasn't getting all this stick for the whole time. There was actually a lot of a lot of camaraderie for sort of three, three and a half years. And it was only when we went, we had a really poor season and went down to what was then the Division 4 or the 4th tier. I, I get lost with what they've all been called. And then we had that season in the 4th tier where, where things started to get particularly bad. But there were a couple of seasons under under um, under Terry Dolan where we had Dean Windus, Linton Brown, Alan Fettis, Rob Dewhurst, Neil Mann, all you know, cracking players, uh, which were fantastic. You know, some brilliant away matches, really, really enjoyable. And, and I hope that the book got that across a little bit because... Because I think that people just think of the Fish and Dolan era as nothing but this, the these sort of clashes between the fans and the and the and the regime, and and you know all all this sort of you know constant battles with relegation, and it wasn't like that at all. There were some there were actually some really really good times in there. I don't know if you've watched it, but the Dean Windass documentary is a really good watch. Um, and it mentions in there about how obviously the Windass was sold to save the club at the time and. Mm. Um, it was interesting to see, obviously, I'm a younger City fan, it was interesting to see that Dean Windass started his career as a central, central midfielder. Yeah. Into the team, and then the only the only reason he started strike was because, obviously, we had that many injuries that mm. he was just put up there. And, obviously, naturally, he started scoring goals. And, um, obviously, the most interesting take on that was that, obviously, Windass perhaps didn't really want to leave City and go to Aberdeen, but was more was sort of, like, forced out to save the club. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Dean wanted to join Norwich. That was his. That was his main one. But I mean, I, I, um, I grew up opposite a lad called Neil Buckley, who played for Hull City in the late eighties. Um, who was a centre back, cracking player who just got a few injuries, and and again, you know, a local player who the, the crowd started getting on the back of when those injuries came through. But he was the same year group as Dean, and I, so I used to see Dean play even as a schoolboy. I think he would have been about fourteen the first time I saw him play. And Neil's family would always take him to the juniors when Dean was playing. So I, I must have seen Dean Windus play 40, 50 games for all City Juniors. In the, this was when he got released that first time as a junior when he was 18. And you, you always knew he was on the pitch. And he was a skillful player. He had amazing technique. But it was just little. It was just too small. And, that you know, Brian Horton will say now that's why they released him. Um, but, yeah, when he came back, I mean, God, what a player. What, that, that, those first few games he played, you were just like, Wow, how the hell has this lad been in non-league football? He was absolutely, and that that was as a central midfielder. And he was playing for Ferriby, wasn't he? I think. Yeah, he was playing for Ferriby, and he played all over for Ferriby. I remember seeing him. I went to watch a mate of mine play for them, and he was playing sweeper that night. It was absolutely fantastic. Could just do anything on a football pitch, could Dean. But as a central midfielder, we didn't have. We were pretty poor around that point, and um, we just just got rid of Andy Payton, I think, who was fantastic. But we basically we had. We had Lee Jenkinson on the left wing as an attacking threat, and that was pretty much it for the whole squad. Yeah. But then Dino came in, and and, and the two of those sort of were linking up because the, Lee was in that juniors team with Dean as well. They had a good understanding, and it just it was fantastic. And then when he went up front, you know, his his football brain was was second to none. He he he, you know, he 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 had a, the football brain of an international. He he was he was brilliant. It just maybe. You know, didn't have it in other areas, perhaps, but but he's he was just it could just he, you know people. It frustrates me a little bit, particularly down in London, where you know you mentioned your whole city fan, and people will often mention Dean Windus, and they'll sort of mention. I, 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 get, I get that. I get yeah, that. Living in living near near Birmingham, all you get yeah, is oh, you're a whole city fan, Dean Windus. Yeah, but the yeah. thing is, sort of this agricultural player, you know, this sort of rough and tumble player and you're like no it wasn't at all you know I can show you goals that he scored you know all kinds of goals that you know a, a, any footballer in the world would be proud to score that that, that that there was a famous one at Wickham in the 1990s you know where he sort of controlled the goal kick turns his man volleys it yeah, yeah you will not see a better volley goal than that from anybody you know Cristiano Ronaldo does that or anybody and it's it's going to be shown forevermore and you know, he could do anything. Could Dean? Absolutely brilliant, brilliant player. And and to have to have got him back when Phil Brown did was an absolute masterstroke. Because you know, and and when you speak to people like Caleb Fallon and Fraser Campbell, they 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 are absolutely adamant of uh, that. He he just he helped make them as players as well because his his knowledge of the game. When I did the book, Neil Buckley actually described Dean as the, the smartest, dumbest get I know, uh, which I thought was a good description <laughs> of it. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. because, yeah, you know, 
he hasn't got much of an education, clearly, and he'll be the first to admit that. But put him on a football pitch, and he is an intelligent, intelligent player. Um, and, and yeah, he's absolutely fantastic, his team. I think he played in one of his best position was probably one of the most intelligent positions in football. It was just off the front, you know, just in the whole bit oh, of the yeah, striker, yeah, picking up the ball, spraying yeah. it, and similar to sort of Rooney in a way. Mm. Obviously, yeah, you know, like better sort of behind the striker, not necessarily as a focal point, but obviously him and Fraser Campbell's partnership was obviously a huge part of that promotion, 2007 to eight, and obviously, like you mentioned, he's he's helped sort of bring the younger players around him and you know the Furlands and the Fagans around him, you know. Absolutely. Up to the next level, really. So. Yeah. Yes, but no, no. I mean, it was. I mean, that that. I'm just going back to the book. I mean, I, one of my favourite things was actually to be able to write the the, the sort of the commentary in between. I, I'd read a couple of books that that were written in in full in the old history style, but they had like the the author narrating around the event. So I thought, mm. you know, I, I'll have a go at doing that, and I absolutely love doing that. And being, a, I've never written about. Um, Wembley in 2008, for example, I, I, I don't think, I, even though I was writing a lot for Amber Nectar and one or two other things at the time, I'd never written about Wembley. So to be able to sort of go back in and, and get a few of my own thoughts down about that was uh, was a really nice thing to be able to do as well and just just relive those things. And and yeah, I mean, my, my hope is that, you know, that the book will will sort of be hopefully in in 10 20 years time still have a relevance for for a lot of people you know it will be something that they may be turned to um when they want to sort of relive those memories in a way that that just watching the goals can't quite can't quite relive you know you, you can watch team win this is volleying at Wembley but you won't get sort of stories about Hull City fans having a game of five a side in a car park on Wembley Way, yeah. things like that. You know, <laughs> all, all the things that help make the game, all, you know, all, all the day even more special. Who was the most um, surprising out of all the interviews you did? Like, who was the most surprising in terms of character that you just didn't expect? Um, oh God, I mean that's that's a tough one because there were just so yeah. many people who were, you know, I, I, one of my first interviews was with Ryan Franz. And and you know I, I came off think, feeling like I'd known him for for years. He was he was just like my best mate instantly. He was he was just yeah. he was lovely. Um, you know Paul Duffin was was um, was really really good. Really, his, his memory was fantastic. Um, I think if I had to pick one, I would maybe go with Peter Taylor, who who yeah, had yeah. a bit of a reputation for being a bit prickly when he was the city manager. You know he didn't he didn't like doing the media stuff that much. He was a bit. You know, and 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 just just yeah, just was maybe a bit a bit aloof with the fans, and yet when you meet him in person, what a lovely, lovely guy he is! Just just so phenomenally nice. And um, he was hoping to come up when when I did the launch at Mister Chew's in Hull. He was hoping to come up, but he had an operation on his knee. Um, so I sort of said to him, "Well, look, maybe if I have a little launch in in London for the Sun and Supporters, do you mind coming along and maybe just being our guest at that?" And it was like, yeah, yeah, of course, you know, I'll do that. So he, he sort of, he turned up and he, I think he'd had a bit of a rubbish journey there and things like that. And he was chuntering away to himself and, and, you know, you were a bit like, oh God, you know, I've got the Peter Taylor that, that maybe he saw as the manager. He walked into the room full of City fans and he had everybody eating out of his hand all night. He was absolutely wonderful. Just a, a lovely man who, who loved it. And, and I think this is what, what I got with a lot of people. He didn't just love whole City. He loved Hull as well, and you got yeah, yeah. so many people yeah, yeah. that they, they, they bought into the city, they bought into the city's history, they bought into the city's challenges, and all the the crap that we'd have to put up, had to put up with over the past few decades since the fishing industry went, you know, and and and, and you know all the crap town nonsense and all this rubbish, they bought into into sort of the football club being a way out of that, giving people that release. And, 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 and Peter Taylor, as much as anybody, Phil Brown was massive on that as well. You know, Phil Brown to this day, I think if, if anybody, you know, criticises Hull to Phil Brown, he'll, he'll, you know, give him a very stern half-time team talk. You know, he'll be, um, you know, he's, he's <laughs> yeah. a, you know, and, and, and I think that matters. And just, you know, it ties back in, I think, a little bit to the Grant McCann thing, you know. The, the plays at the moment seem to have an element of that spirit, but but yeah, but but going back to your original question, yeah, I think Peter Taylor was was the one where I was expecting something a little bit different, and I was really overwhelmed with just what a lovely bloke he was. Yeah, obviously, f- football changes people. I think obviously some people are really serious. As you said, Peter Taylor is like a sort of prickly person in football, and 
of you mentioned Phil Brown there, and both are like sort of the opposite of each other in terms of how they are in football. Not Grant McCann, Phil Brown's obviously mm-hmm. real charismatic and you know stuff. I think you've said Peter Taylor's more like a bit more reserved and stuff. So I think it's great to hear that you know how you know managers and stuff and former players are outside of you know football because at the end of the day they're just people, aren't they? And it's they obviously are. great that you've had the experience to sort of talk to them about you know really important period in City's history. Yeah, well, when I first rang Peter Taylor, I'd somebody had given me his number, and I really hated ringing people blind because you know you just sort of, you catch them unawares, and it's not it's not the best way to go into things. And and you know Peter Taylor obviously was a key person for the book, so I just sort of I rang him, and I got this you know this voice in this, this sort of very Essexy voice going hello, and I was just like oh um, <laughs> hello, hello Peter, um, do you, I, I hope you don't mind. My name's Richard Gardner. I'm writing a book about Hull City. Would it be possible to speak to you about it? And he just went. Well, no, not really. And I'm just thinking, oh, no, you know, I, I can't do it. So, so I just sort of said, um, do you mind me asking why not, Peter? And I, well, I'm on a train and I'm in the quiet carriage. I shouldn't really have answered my phone at all, to be honest with you. And I'm just, I was just like, no, no, not now, Peter, don't worry. I just, you know, I'll, co- I'll come and meet you somewhere. I'll come and meet you somewhere in Essex. And, and, and from that moment onwards, he was just, it just couldn't have been nicer you know and, and again he was another one who who you know was, was getting in touch with me afterwards going oh I've, I've managed to contact such and such for you I've managed to get you this oh, bloke I've managed to get you that bloke you know and it's just <laughs> such a you know little touches like that and so many people did that so so many people I mean hmm. you know somebody Richard Garcia for example I couldn't get in touch with Warren Joyce but I knew he was coaching in Australia so I just sort of I'd, I'd already interviewed Richard Garcia at this point and I said look Richard, I know you don't know Warren Joyce. I know you've had nothing to do with him, but he's involved in the Australian football side of things. Is there any chance you can do something? And, you know, about... I mean, basically, he sorted it out. He had to call in various favours and sort out various things, but he got me Warren Joyce. And um, I remember I'd interviewed Mark Greaves, so I've mentioned, you know, he's just such a lovely guy. And at the end of the interview with Greavesy, he he just sort of said, "Have you got Ian Ashby yet?" And I was like, "No, nah, I'm really struggling to contact him actually." And and Mark Greaves, you know, literally 45 minutes after first speaking to him, Greaves just was like, "Well, look, when I played for Hull United, I, I I did it for free, but I just said to Ian Ashby, look, you know, who was the manager of Hull United at the time, and just mm-hmm. I just said to him, look, you tell you what, Ash, you owe me a favour. So if I call in that favour, you have to do it." And he said, and, and he just sort of said to me, "I'll make that favour him speaking to you for this book." And I was just like. <laughs> Are you sure, mate? You know, I've, 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 you don't have to do this. And he was like, yeah, yeah, no, it'll be fine. You know, and you, you've got 45 minutes after interviewing somebody, you've got them calling in favours on your behalf, you know, and that, and that just seemed to be the spirit throughout the entire book. You know, so many people just doing doing what they could and and just being just decent, kind, nice people because that's what... It sounds like a domino effect, really. Were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Domino effect. yeah and I think, mm. you know, that the later interviews weren't too bad because if you go to somebody and go, well, you know... Ash, Phil Brown, Peter Taylor, Boaz, Nick Barnby, Andy Dawson, so on and so forth were involved. Can you speak to me as well? Then, you know, everybody was like, oh, God, yeah, yeah, obviously this is going to be a big thing. But but those people who really helped me out in those early days, you know, I'm forever grateful to them because they really went above and beyond anything I could have expected and, and were just fantastic. Have you got any tips on how to sort of gain more contacts and stuff with, you know, sort of, um, obviously we do a podcast here and was mm. obviously if you would like to get some sort of former players on, you got any sort of tips how to, you know, yeah, begin get, that sort of process? Right? Get, get in touch with Brendan Smurthwaite, who Brendan was the main, sort of, for, for that side of things, Brendan was the media uh, manager at City yeah. for about 10 years and he's one of the nicest people again you could ever wish to meet and he he got me people left right and center he was fantastic um but my main thing to be honest was just pestering people on on um twitter and social media and just getting yeah. them on that he, even like you know I, I got john whitney through linkedin um things that you know really? there was like some really but but just Zounds, just yeah. keep going and, and and that 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 was the main way i mean i, I think that Brendan got me a lot of people. I, um, Phil Buckingham helped me out a lot as well. He was really good because obviously he had a lot of contacts. Um, yeah. And then it was just a lot of it, though, was either, you know, Paul Duff and I saw was working as an advisor for some betting sports betting company, I think. And I just got in touch with them and got Paul through that. And, you know, with other people, it, it was just sort of searching what they were doing and getting in touch with the companies that they were working for. Or, or yeah, just going to them on on social media, which was the main the main way and you know that you, you'll have seen there are some people who are very active on social media who, who are very you know happy to 
interact with the fans, people like Caleb, Ryan France and, and Fakes is another one. And, and then some who took a bit of unearthing, but, you know, it, it, once you get them, you've got them and it was great. Yeah, that's, obviously it's more about like who you know than what you know, I guess. And obviously, it's yeah, quite yeah, easy to reach out. Absolutely. And you know, yeah. I, I went into this literally out of all the players who uh, people I interviewed, the only one who I knew beforehand was Adam Lothorpe, who I went to school with. But other than Adam, it, there was just it, it, I was just going into it all blind, really. Um, and 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 yeah, like you know, I told you the story about getting getting Chris Chilton. That was just finding his son on on Facebook and and putting in a request that way. And and yeah, I just kept going through that and then asking, you know. But but like I say, people what once people got got hang of it, and you know, without people love talking about themselves, don't they? As you probably gathering yeah, that yeah. with me tonight but um, <laughs> it's um pe- people do you know and particularly when you want them to recount what what for the vast majority of them was some of the happiest times of their career you know it's it, it, the, the people love that so um yeah i mean hopefully you, you, just just social media alone will, will be able to help you with, with a lot of these things um i think uh, you got anything more to add about the book? Because we could move on to the quiz. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm yeah. quite quite keen to get the quiz out the way actually. Because uh, yeah, <laughs> but like yeah, thank you for yeah, yeah. talking about the book. It's been it's been really like um, eye opening and stuff, and it's great yeah. to have you on. No, th- uh, thank you so great. much, and 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 yeah, I really really appreciate you inviting me. Uh, it's been re- I've really really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been been quite um eye-opening how you've been able to um, do get all the contacts etc and that was why yeah. I was keen to get you on yeah I mean what you know we wouldn't necessarily have to discuss it now but I'll, I'll sort of try to steer you in the direction of, of you know who were who the good yeah, yeah. I mean the, the, there are no bad interviews to be honest with you there are lots of decent people but just um you know who, who are particularly good value and who, who are particularly receptive to this sort of thing but any help that I can give you obviously I'll, I'll be more than happy to do that's great, because um, me and Ben are sort of in the industry, you know, I think it's great to hear for someone that's older that's you know, obviously written a book, and me and Ben have spoken about writing a book ourselves, so I think obviously having you want that, that, that was one of the... your book was, yeah. It was um, during, during the first lockdown was when I actually ordered um, The Decade, and then I was just reading through it at, at length, and I was thinking I could I could do something like this, and then I didn't really have the strength to... Um, say I was going to do anything until I sort of got back into my second year at college and I spoke to mm. my tutor saying that obviously I'm a massive football fan. I've read this this long book and I'm just wondering your thoughts if I should do something like that. Obviously, this is the actual website is mm. bought, bought out of a put randomly, but it's bought been bought out of a college project. Right. Which right, is yeah. like, which is quite it's quite interesting, but obviously we're looking to carry it on afterwards yeah well you know i mean I, I i i went to cooper you know which which most people would turn the nose up as a school in whole you know or not or orchard park estate i've got not a great education but i just sort of thought you know why, why what's the point of not being ambitious you know you, you look at the decade now and people sort of seem to think it, it looks like this massive sort of almost maybe if i'd known it was going to be like this at the beginning it would have seemed a bit more daunting but but go for it. Be ambitious, because what's the point in not being? You know, it, and, and, yeah, and, yeah. you know, you, you guys are clearly talented, and you've got a lot of get up and go about you, and and that's fantastic. And for setting yourself up in a media career, you know, I, uh, this bit doesn't have to go on the website. I don't know if, you, but but you know, the, the media is still run by lots of grey-haired old men in their sixties who are absolutely terrified by the <laughs> internet and and just hope that it's a fad that's going to go away. And if you've got younger people coming in who, who you know, have got podcasts behind them, who've got, got websites behind them, things like that, uh, that, that stands you in great stead. Um, it's, it's a really, really good thing to have. And, and just showing, showing you know, that you've got the, the levels of um, j- just get, get up and go like you, like you both clearly have is, is, is a really, really good thing to have. It, and, and things like that, you know, I, I look through God knows how many CVs over a year when we're appointing people and things like that. And, and, stuff like this really really stands out and and i think to be honest i mean no pressure on either of you both but but one thing i would love to happen is for for there to be a, a sequel to the decade but for me not to write it for somebody you know for other people to to pick that up um you know i i i, I that next decade after is not my story to tell i had my two sons in that decade which took me 
meant that I was, you know, there were a few seasons where I was only maybe getting to five or six games a season and having to, yeah. you know, just sort of make do with what I could the rest of it. So I, I don't see it as my decade to tell, but but for somebody else who could could yeah. live it in the way that I lived the decade that I've written about, that that would be the great thing that I would, I would love to see that. Not not to not for me to keep going, but but just to hopefully help maybe just inspire other people a little bit or give other people a bit of confidence to do that sort of thing because um it's a hell of a lot more difficult to get into media yeah. now than it was when I started out um and I've got nothing but respect for, for people like yourselves who are doing so much to to carve something out for themselves yes yeah thank you for that and um what I was going to ask what you brought up now is like how did you manage to balance sort of writing a huge book and sort of work life and stuff did you just do a lot of stuff in your spare time or was it just um, like years of late nights there like 3am writing stuff and... no I mean I, I so I commute I, I was commuting at that point in the days when you could go on public transport um, <laughs> I was I was yeah. commuting to to central London from, from High Barnet so it's like 40 minutes each way on the tube um, there and back uh, and I was li- I li- literally living at the end of one of the tube lines. So you could always get a seat. So I just go sit on the furthest back seat on the tube and then yeah. just, just research or write. And every single tube journey for three years, I did nothing but work on the book. Um, and then the interviews, you know, I, I, I started working on it actually just after, so it would have been, wouldn't have been long after my first son was born. Um, and, and, that, that was a bit tricky in a way, but then there were times when, you know, my, my wife was knackered and just wanted to go to sleep and I, you know, my son was asleep and I was just sort of there and, and that was when I'd do a lot of my interviews and things like that and and it's just, I, I think for something like this, it was a, it was a real labour of love, it was a passion and it, it, it was something I just couldn't wait to work on, I couldn't wait for my commute in the morning and it's not very often you get to say that, yeah. um, it's it's a, it was a real, it, it, you know, I, I just, every second I spent working on it, I absolutely loved, not one bit of it was was laborious, not one bit of it dragged, it, all of it was just brilliant. And and particularly when that, that, those first few interviews got out of the way and I realised that, that it was snowballing and I, I, w- I would be able to get something out that, that would get close to meeting my ambitions um, for it. Yeah, that, that was just fantastic. Did and, you do um, your interviews over like Skype or something or, or was a lot of it like in person? No, like no, online? it's, it's yeah. weird. It's weird. You know, you, you sort of, you look at how things are now and now everybody's used to Zoom and Teams. Yeah, but, yeah. but no, uh, basically it was, um, it was me ringing people for the most that part, was, yeah. uh, me ringing them and then, put, you know, putting them on speakerphone and recording it on a dictaphone. Um, for the big interviews, I would come and meet people. So, you know, I'd, like I said, I drove up to Hull to meet Nick Barnby and Ash and, and people like that. I met Paul Duffin in the Ivy, uh, of all places, because um, yeah. that's Paul Duffin for you. Uh, and then, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I drove drove into Essex to meet Peter Taylor. And, yeah, drove sort of met a few people in Hull, spoke to Ken Wagstaff in the the car park of the Lamworth pub and uh, two cars crashed just as we started the interview and all you could hear for the first five minutes of the interview is these two drivers swearing at each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a real, um, no, it, it, so, so, so yeah, it, it was just, I, th- I think if, you, if you're passionate about what you're doing, like, like you two are with this, you know, it, it's, it, yeah. if, you, if you can enjoy something, then, then it just doesn't feel like work and, and, and you just, yeah. you're happy to fill any spare, any spare, hour that you've got with working on the book so it, it never felt like something that that I didn't have the time for because it was just something I was always looking forward to working on yeah exactly yeah I think that it's obviously if you're passionate about something then you're always going to um you know work towards it and mm-hmm. strive towards it I think it's important to have like dreams and aspirations absolutely like, and, like, and like I said you know always never let anybody tell you that you can't do something never don't be ambitious with things yeah. even if, if if you're massively ambitious about something and you just miss it by a bit well you'll still have achieved something brilliant and and yeah uh, that's that's generally been the you know I've been lucky to have parents that always sort of told us not to not to feel that we should have any limitations on on anything that we did even though we were growing up like I say on a council estate in Hull it never never occurred to me that I couldn't do something like this and um yeah it's yeah I, I would encourage encourage anybody just to give it a go because because seeing you know when when you first get that feel, feel that book in your hand I'd never tell my sons this, but I probably preferred getting the book, feeling the book, than no, I wouldn't, no, no. I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Um, but no, it, it, it's it's a hell of a nice thing to feel when when you've got something in print that you've written in your hand. It's um, it, it's a real buzz. It, yeah, yeah. So I would I would heartily recommend it. And and if either of you ever go down that route, and there's ever anything I can do to help, please just let me know. I'll be more than happy to uh, to do anything I can. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for obviously offering your time on the podcast today and everything. So we'll get into the questions now, if you'd like. Yep, go on then. I'll I, yeah, I'll do my best. Looking at some of these questions now, and I'm thinking um, they are quite hard to be fair. And the to first fair, one... to be fair, so, some of them, some of them are to obviously we we did, we did this just before the podcast. Mm. I was thinking, how do I um how do we manage to get ten questions? And end up asking my dad for a couple because obviously he's been right. going to City for numerous yeah. years. <laughs> so the, so the, a few of them is I think Jason's in his fifties. So a few of them will be like, okay. <laughs> well, you're passing the book basically. But yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, the, so the first question: Which player who scored both goals in the 1975 FA Cup final signed for City? 1984. So was it Alan Taylor? Yep, correct. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, so here's the next one. What was Hull City's first televised fixture? Um, for, well, for, in any competition where the where the match was live, it was a, a Simod Cup game against Middlesbrough in about 1989, 1990. We lost 3-1 in extra time. Paul Waits yeah. scored the goal. Yeah, and, um, just, just, to quickly, just to quickly <laughs> answer that, I, I watched it at a mate's house because it was on B. The, like back then, everybody had Sky, but there was BSB as well, which nobody had. But a friend of mine had it, so I watched the game and recorded it on an old VHS t- tape. And um, it ended up going to Paul Waits, who scored the goal. I lent it to Neil Buckley, uh, to David Mill, sorry, who was, who was a friend of my family's who was playing in the game, and he lent it to Paul Waits. And Paul Waits just kept it. So if Paul in, in the office, <laughs> Paul Waits was listening to this podcast. Uh, Paul, Paul, can I have my video back, please? <laughs> <laughs> um, next one is who holds the record for the shortest reign in charge of all city? Oh, as, uh, um, so in terms of games, in terms of games, like in, not, in terms not of months, games, well, yeah, games. Well, there were times when somebody, so, so a proper appointed manager as opposed to, um, like a caretaker manager and things like that, yeah. Um, oh, that's a tough one then, because um, I think Colin Appleton's second reign would probably count, but you would have to add those to his first, wouldn't you? Um, so it could it be? I'm going to go with Bobby Collins or Jan Mulby will be possibilities in there. Um, who else might there be? I'm gonna, I'll go with Jan Mulby. I've put down Colin Appleton because it was he was sixty. Ah, I think right. it was his second spell, like sixteen ah, games okay. in charge. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. I, I was adding them to his first one, so uh, yeah. Okay, mm, yeah. I won't claim the point though. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I don't, um, so the next one is how many games did Hull City go without a win at the start of the nineteen eighty nine to ninety season? Quite a tough one. Into ninety, so that was long. Yeah, because we. I remember the game that we won, the first game that we won. We, beat, we won 3-2 at Bradford. Ian McPowan scored a last-minute winner. Um, and it was just... Stan, that was just after Hapleton had been sacked, wasn't it? Stan Turnham was just, had just been appointed. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with... Oh, gosh. Um, it was a hell of a lot. I'm going to go with 17. Worse. 16. <laughs> <laughs> Worse <laughs> Um, so I've, the next one is which Premier League club is former keeper Alan Fettis the goalkeeper coach for? I know this one because I interviewed Alan. It's uh, it's Manchester oh, yeah, United. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Manchester yeah, United. You'll know that one. Yeah, yeah. I, we, I used to work in Spiders when I lived in Hull. And oh, yeah. Alan used to come in all the time. It was mate, it was one of the DJs. Uh, and he'd come in all the time. It was sort of always quite weird. You know, all these these goths and metalers and things. And then this huge whole city goalkeeper who was... Uh, but he loved his indie music, so he was more than happy. But, but yeah, no, he's, uh, he's doing really well at Man United. He's, uh, yeah, he seems to be really highly regarded there. I'll let Ben ask this one, because I don't have the answer down on here, but it's oh. who scored the first goal of the Great Escape season in 1998-99? Oh, God. Um, oh, was that... It might have been one of those games where we started off losing to Blackpool. We always seem to play Blackpool in the first game for ages and lose to them one way. There was one way we lost 1-0 and one way we lost 3-1 where I think it was Greedy or Mike Edwards got the goal. Um, but then, 
I'm, I'm going to go because I know we lost two one at Chester quite early on in that season, and Mark Hately got the goal. So I'm going to go with Mark Hately. It was uh, David Doria against Rotherham. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would never have got that. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so the next one is um, a true or false question. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian Ashby was made the captain straight away after signing for City. True or false? That is false. It was Greg Strong. Yeah. And then, and then I think it it was very briefly just in Whittle once Greg Strong got suspended, and then it might even John Anderson might even have got it for one game. But yeah, it was a while before Ash was captain. Yeah, weird as it um, now. Yeah. Next one is who was Phil Brown's first game in charge against? Oh, it was um, it was an away match at Plymouth where we lost one nil, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it's. I think a lot of people think it was the the Cardiff game straight after where we won four one because that was like the people look back on that as like the the Phil Brown turnaround. But no, no, it was a fairly miserable game at, at home park. Yeah. Next one is Leonis Slutsky and Chelsea's loan tree Ola Ena, uh, Michael Hector, and Fikayo Tomori in 2017. But which of the three made the most appearances out of the? Three I've mentioned there in that season. Oh God, that's a good one. Um, I think Tamori was was a bit in and out, wasn't he? Um, and Hector was. I'm going to go with Aina. I think yeah. who I think didn't have much yeah. competition at right back. Yeah. Yeah, he, I think he played. I think he played every single game. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was really really impressed with him as well. I was hoping we'd get him, but yeah. Yeah, a lot of people at the time were really critical of him. I think, and mm. I had a few people that I knew that was. Overly critical of Aina, and I think he was. Mm. I think he sounded was like nineteen, twenty, and yeah, yeah. You could, see that, you could see there was a player in there. And now Absolutely, he's obviously playing yeah. further forward. Yeah. Um, but, um, so the last one is this uh, question on this season. Mm. Out of all the penalty shootouts we've had this season, how many have we won? Oh God, I'm, <laughs> great, I'm grateful at this sort of thing. Um, one, two. So we lost to Stevenage, beat Sunderland, beat Leeds. Was there another one that I can't think of? Um, I'll go with three. Yes, oh, that's, yeah. actually, that's <laughs> correct. Seven out of ten, you've done well there, to be fair. Um, Some hard questions in there. Yeah, yeah. Cheers no, for no, taking yeah. part. No, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I've, I've really, really enjoyed that. Um, and, and uh, yeah, good luck with everything. And, and keep in touch, definitely, if there's anything I can help with, writing for the site or anything like that, yeah, I'd be more than happy to, to do anything. Thank you for thank you for coming on yeah, today, Richard. It's been, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure to have you, yeah, your company talking about everything. Quality, yeah. Yep, yep, thoroughly enjoyed it and, and, and good luck with the, the rest of them as well. But yeah, like I say, hopefully we'll stay in touch. Anyway. Yeah, 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 thank you, Richard. Thank Cheers. you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye.